Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> you only have one family. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to become them. You can overcome. You don't have to repeat their mistakes. You can break generational trauma. Today's guest, Daniel Knight, he's got a new name and he's putting a new face on it. Daniel Knight, welcome. Relationships with parents are complicated aren't they <laughs> oh yeah i would say so okay i read your article that you wrote on linkedin wow what prompted you to write that about your dad it was father's day okay that makes sense <laughs> yep so, yeah you mentioned that in there and i didn't even catch that yeah i don't know that's always a a challenging day because everyone's all happy father's day all over the place and it's like you know let me give you a taste of a not so happy father's day <laughs> so yeah so i wrote it and i was like you know this is a challenging day for a lot of people so this is why it's challenging for me so yeah okay perfect segue let's talk about why father's day is challenging for you okay well i mean there's a lot of childhood trauma and loss of my dad multiple different times in ways i was not expecting that every time father's day rolls around i don't have too much of an issue with it but it's not an easy day you know it's not my favorite holiday of the year i'll tell you that much yeah what do you remember of life before you were eight i mean not a whole lot anybody in my family would say that i was my dad's favorite and so i did everything with him i would go to his office with him and work with him he was showing me how to trade forex when i was six years old and i very much was following in his footsteps and so i'd do everything with him like literally like you name it he'd go to the bakery because we had a bakery here in utah called Black Forest Bakery and Cafe, and I'd go and work with him. He'd get there at five in the morning and I'd go with him because I wanted to. I'd help him create recipes. I brought cherry muffins to the bakery and they were a hit. And he would always tell me he had people like banging down the door. I don't I don't think I believe it at this point, but he did. He's like, there's a line of people waiting to buy the cherry muffins. I'm like, that's so cool. They are pretty good. So I'm not surprised, you know? <laughs> That's cute. I uh, actually um, just took my three-year-old to the bakery this morning. Like, honestly, he loves going to the bakery and he has like, all kids have their favorite things that they want to get every time, but he loves yeah. like the sparkly sugar cookies. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's what they had. They had like the sugar crystals on top of them. And I mean, they were really good, at least from, you know, what I could remember. That was eight when we had the bakery. I don't know if that was a front for some of the things that he had going on, but I think it probably was. Yeah, let's talk about how what he really had going on and what happened from eight to nine. So apparently he had been doing what he was doing before 
he moved to the States. So we'll kind of wind back to my mom meeting him. My mom met him in Spain. She served an LDS mission there and met my dad there. And then she actually asked to be transferred from where she was at because she was like getting feelings for him apparently and you're not supposed to do that when you're on a mission so Mm. that's not the mission that you're on and so yeah so she she got transferred came back here after she was done serving then went back there and met up with him and then they had four kids there so I was born in Spain and I was the fourth and then after me they decided to move back to the United States and they had three more kids so I'm one of seven I'm right in the middle and and I have five sisters so one brother so a lot of girls we always had a nice house we always had nice stuff I didn't really know always what my dad did necessarily it seemed like something in finance something in banking it was always changing it seemed like but he was always kind of doing his own thing so when I was eight for whatever reason they decided to open a bakery I didn't know why but all right I was I was eight years old what am I gonna think about it right so so yeah so they had this bakery we were in the process of opening the second one and I was kind of helping him with like I guess I wasn't doing the brick but I was helping him with various different things and and then yeah and one day he was not there anymore while I was at school not all of the kids were at school the FBI showed up at our house and basically swarmed it I guess there were all these black SUVs all over the place and they like raided the house and arrested my dad and and that was pretty much it because they had enough evidence to convict him of money laundering to the tune of about 10 million dollars so and so you know keep in mind he was from Spain if you launder money and if it's over i think the number was ten thousand dollars you can apply to get back into the states after seven years so i figured that out much later in my life when i was trying to get him back i discovered that i'm like okay well i'm i'm done fighting this battle because it doesn't seem realistic so so yeah so he got arrested and then he spent some time in a halfway house i mean we lost everything my house the bakeries we had moved into my grandparents house but he put a lien on their house for the bakeries and so they ended up losing their house too oh my so god we went from yeah i mean we were living in the nicest neighborhood in the state i mean this you know granted the guy was laundering millions of dollars so he yeah, liked nice so, things <laughs> yeah right i mean the playground you describe sounds like a dream yeah right i mean yeah i forgot so because now you you've read my article but yeah this playground Imagine a fortress, okay? Like these were four giant towers with a zip line in between them, a rope ladder or bridge that he had built. He built like all of this and it was massive. You could literally see it from Google Earth. I don't think the images would still show it, but you could. Like it was huge. And I'm sad because it's not there anymore, which is kind of a bummer. Like, how do you get rid of that? It was probably a little rackety at this point but but yeah so like all the things you know we had this bus essentially that was our car that we drove around it was this big red van and it had seats for like 12 people because we had a nanny and a babysitter and you know the family had to fit everybody in one car right so <laughs> well so. yeah what was going to the drive-through like oh man i can't even i can't even imagine never a good time i think my parents just order you know a hundred of everything to feed us all (laughs) oh my gosh did you guys take like any trips that you remember with all of you yeah yep yeah including grandparents and that was what the big red van was for we made a couple trips down to disneyland and those were in you know the bus and we went to the redwoods and we have this picture of all of us standing inside of this giant tree that's pretty cool so yeah we definitely went to montana one year 
definitely traveled. It's so <laughs> interesting too that your mom like was on this mission. Does she talk about that mission at all? Not like a ton. I mean, I haven't asked a ton about it, but that's kind of the gist of it that I know of. So and then she was like, wait, this isn't the mission I'm supposed to be on, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it's like taboo. You're not supposed to be getting feelings for people while you're on an LDS mission, which I mean, I get like, that's not the focus, but you know, it happens. So she like asked to be transferred, like specifically because of that. So it's kind of interesting. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess so, he was interested too. <laughs> yeah, I've had some after they got divorced, I, I had some interesting conversations with him about jump ahead a little bit but he, they got divorced he was in spain again and he was still he was committed to supporting us still and he basically would go on these dates because he didn't want to be single he'd go on these dates and basically just tell the women he was going out with like hey you need to know i have seven kids at home in the u.s because that's what he would call home even though he lived 90 percent of his life in spain and a wife and he would still call her his wife my mom and he's like and everything i build is going to be split evenly between them and us and your kids like they'll get a portion but you know when i die it's going 11 12 however many kids you have plus me or plus you plus all of them it's getting split evenly and that was like his opening line basically and i'm it, like do you, you reveal know. that on date one maybe date three he said date one like that was that was basically it he'll take them out he'll buy him the ice cream he took me to the ice cream places that he took the ladies to that he would you know take out and he would tell them and basically he married the one person that said okay you know you know and she's a super nice lady and yeah so i mean it makes sense she used to nanny us no <laughs> yeah. nice sometimes yep. that happens right with the kids. i yeah. like that <laughs> so yeah so it's kind of weird because like i didn't know her but you know some of my siblings remembered her like vaguely right but yeah so that was kind of interesting did they have any children no so she already had two kids and he married into that but yeah do you think that he still loved your mom oh 100 percent. every single I, he would tell me all the time like he definitely still loved her till the day he died do you think that helped in some ways helped in what regard like process all of what happened so he passed away from a heart attack he was 55 years old you know when it happened i was very sad but i was also relieved for him because he was working from you know, he had seven bakeries in a warehouse at this point. My mom thinks that he might have been still doing what he was doing through those. And I didn't really even think about it till I wrote that article and was doing a little bit of digging and research. And I learned all sorts of things about my dad during that. So um, yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, we can circle back to it for sure. Because we're kind of like, I'm kind of like beating around it, huh? So but we'll get there. It's an important part of the story. <laughs> so yeah, so he, he passed from a heart attack and he had the seven bakeries in the warehouse. He was working from like 4 a.m. till midnight, 1 a.m. almost every day and still sending money back here, still trying to support me. Like my part of this feeling that relief for him was that it must have sucked. It must have been awful. Like he couldn't come back here at all. It was not allowed. He couldn't even go back to Canada. He tried once. That didn't work out. So when he passed, like, I just imagined that he was not happy. He was super stressed all the time. He was living this life that was like his second choice, basically. But you know, you make your own bed, right? Like, that's kind of what that's the price you pay when you break the law and you do things that are not acceptable in a foreign country, you know? 
And I kind of just always knew, like, that's how he was going to go. Because every male above him died mid-50s from a heart attack. And I didn't want that for myself. I was actually supposed to go over and take over the bakeries when he died. It was like a common part of our conversations that, hey, like, this is all being built for you. Like, you know, if something ever happens to me, you need to come over here and run the bakeries. And I was always kind of just like, okay, okay, like, that makes sense. Cool. My dad's building this business and like, I can go and take it and, you know, run it. And I had even like, I would kind of manage them from here. He had this camera system over there and I'd watch and I'd call him like, hey, so-and-so just X, Y, Z, whatever. And then I'd watch him like, get on their case about it. So that was kind of interesting. And then all of a sudden, like you'd see the whole demeanor shift at the bakery because they're like, what? Like these guys, family watching us from the United States, like telling on me, like, are you nanny cam? (laughs) Yeah. And so like, so I didn't think anything of it. You know, I was like, okay, like, yeah, I'll, I'll run the bakeries at that time when he did pass. I was doing my own business. I had learned to fix just about everything because when he went away after it was pretty solidified that he wasn't going to be coming back anytime soon, he told me I had to be the man of the house. So I quickly was like, okay, I need to fix everything. I need to like provide, like I got to do all these different things. And so I was like fixing the vacuum, fixing computers, changing all the light bulbs, you know, doing the dad stuff. It was funny. I'm like way taller than he is now. When he passed, I... I had been fixing stuff. I had my own business, fixing and flipping electronics. I was doing that since I was 12. I just started fixing them out of my mom's basement. I'd put an ad on the local classifieds and fix, you know, reformat someone's computer for a hundred bucks. And it was super easy, but I learned how to do that because I had to do that for my own computer many times because we didn't have money to pay for these things to get fixed. So I learned how to fix it myself. So that's what I was doing. And, and he passed. And at this point, you know, I had been doing it for years and my life was great. I'm like, I'm over here living like this super awesome life, running my own business. Like I would basically post an ad to buy somebody's electronics. They'd bring it to my apartment. I'd fix it. I'd post it on eBay. And then USPS would come pick it up and from my doorstep and take it away. And I was making great money. And so when he passed, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt in the bakeries. And I just realized that the last thing I want is to follow in my dad's footsteps because those were not very great footsteps. He was drinking multiple two liters of Coke a day. He was eating terribly, eating tons of sugar, tons of carbs, and in food. And, you know, nothing against that, but I just didn't want that to be my life, which is funny because I, no, that was after. See, then that was after I had already decided I didn't want to be in food anymore because I had been a sous chef at Armin's, a grocery store here. And, and it just wasn't, I decided that I wanted to get out of that basically. So I was fixing stuff again. So yeah, I was like, I'm not doing it. I just like, that's not a life that I want to live being a bakery owner and waking up super early just to go to bed super late just to go back and do it all over again and be super unhealthy and you would think that I could say okay well I just won't eat like crap no I've got quite the sweet tooth like (laughs) I don't know if you're familiar Yeah, yeah I don't know if you're familiar with like crumble cookies but I'll get a box of those and eat all four cookies in a night. So I got to I gotta control myself. And if I was running a bakery or seven, it probably wouldn't be so good on my health. Yeah, that makes sense. 
I mean, when I worked at Dairy Queen, I think I probably packed on another 10 pounds just from, you know, getting free blizzards or whatever. You know, if you're around that all the time and you get free food, like it's hard to not eat it. Right. You were told though at like eight or nine that you had to be the man of the house. Like, but you did tell me that your mom said you don't have to be. What did that conversation look like? It's a little bit of a blur. My family went through a lot of changes at that time. It was hard for me not to just like shut it all out. I think I just disregarded it, honestly. I I don't think I believed her because he told it to me. I don't know unless he had come back, I would have believed that I didn't need to be because I had Mm. thought there needs to be one, you know? You know, she basically did take over she did take over and did everything you know she she hadn't worked in forever like she had seven kids she went on her mission like at a young age she found my dad she went back there got married had all these kids so it was like all of a sudden you know like I said the FBI shows up and takes us all away and I learned that she that wasn't the first day she found out about all of this so she kind of like knew the FBI had showed up beforehand at one point and seized a briefcase full of like tens of thousands of dollars. I think she said it was something like a hundred thousand dollars. That was what they needed to basically do the raid and arrest him. And he had this nice office that he was doing everything out of. So I just don't think I believed it. She was like, well, you don't need to be. I'm like, well, I'm going to do my best to help, you know, like I'll do everything I possibly can. And I did. I mean, we went from living this, you know, the house is worth a million bucks now and super nice everything and all these kids to nothing. So she ended up, she was trying to get into real estate. She, you know, was between jobs and all this stuff. And then we got a paper route to supplement that as well. I went every single day with her to fold papers and throw them out and, you know, deliver them and all that. So we got pretty good. We were like the best in the depot. So yeah. And I think a lot of that I think it was really good for me. Like my dad really instilled this super hard work ethic for me watching him at these bakeries. He was teaching me Forex. It was like 10 o'clock at night, you know, so you can trade Forex all day long on top of his normal job on top of the money laundering. So <laughs> like, how do you keep up with all of that? Crazy. So yeah. So I mean, I was just kind of a hard worker. Like I've always just been a super hard worker. And so we do these paper routes and helping out as best I could. Wow. I feel like so many men will be able to relate as far as, you know, being thrown into manhood maybe before they're ready. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I feel like that is a really hard thing to do, but it's like a common theme that I've heard. Tell me about some of the research stuff that you discovered about your dad or about the whole investigation. There was a podcast that you linked in that article. Mm Mm-hmm. First, I didn't know the timeline of when he started doing everything. Mm. That was probably the biggest thing to me because he was like, he was my hero. Like my dad was like the super hard worker providing for our family, immigrated from Spain, built up this, had all this money. I thought a lot about money at that time and not at the time of writing the article, but when I was younger and I was like proud to be his son, you know, I I always just kind of thought that he ended up mixed in with the wrong people and then started money laundering and getting involved with this cartel and and all that. And uh, what I learned was that he was doing it the whole time. He was doing it before I was even born. And that was really hard for me because I'm like, I was lied to my entire life by my dad. When I wrote the article, when I did you know, started digging into it, I, it hit me that like, I don't know if I could believe anything he ever told me. I'm sure a lot of people will relate to that. It was just so weird because like, 
how do you go from being proud of this guy who you looked up to as your hero who sure he got deported he always painted it as woe is me like oh i got roped into this so oh, i got mixed in with these other guys and and then the fbi took advantage of me they said they weren't gonna deport me they asked me for my help to help bust the guys of the cartel like he was never direct i would always i would ask him like to give me the full story and I mean, I realized that he just kind of bypassed it every time, you know, and it was always that was this, to protect was you. Me. No, I think it was to protect himself, his persona to me, like he didn't want me to think badly of him. He didn't want me to know the truth, you know, mm. but I mean, I learned that the bakery that we had here got shot up one night. I mean, I'd go with him to that place, you know, oh like I learned That's terrifying. that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people would show up at our house. My mom had to like get rid of these guys apparently at one point that showed up kind of threatening my dad. And I think it was in the midst of this whole FBI investigation. And like, and this was in 97. That's when my youngest sister was born. Born. Like he was still popping out kids while laundering money. Like, and that's the thing, like in doing this research, I discovered that he brought it from Spain. He left Spain with all these bad relationships that he had screwed over over there. And I don't think it was on this scale, but he was from the time I was born till the time that he died, continuously putting us in danger. And as far as I know, he was still doing it. I mean, who gets deported from being in jail after four years, show up with nothing but the clothes on your back. And within four or five years later, you've got seven bakeries in a warehouse. I mean, you do the math right? Like chances are he was still finagling things around to make that happen. And I didn't realize that till till really doing the research. So this was like within the last year, you know, but I've kind of accepted that it was all kind of a lie. But I didn't realize that it was like before I was even born, while we were all such young kids, you know, like infants, right? Like, that was probably the hardest thing for me. The weirdest part was just realizing the timeline that it was all the time it was the whole time, you know, yeah, that is a tough reality for sure. Also, I'm curious, like, how does that affect your mindset, your money mindset, and how you feel towards money? I have learned to not let money stress me out and just to not let it be a driving force for anything that I do. And I've made plenty of money in my life. I've had plenty of jobs that have paid me very well, done consulting that worked out very well for me. And I've had plenty of struggles. I mean, to ground zero fighting to keep my business alive and avoid getting a job like but the thing that keeps me going is knowing that money comes and goes understanding that even if I don't have any money, like, I'm not going to do anything crazy to get it, you know, because one, I'm not living that lifestyle that he did, like, I won't do it. I've been very adamant about it and you know you'd think like okay how hard is it not to break the law it's not <laughs> like newsflash it's really not that hard not to do anything illegal especially when it comes to money shifting your mindset to understand that there's no amount of money that is worth your freedom and that is worth your sanity like that's so much more important. And and when it comes to the sanity part of it, like if you're stressed about money, like make adjustments, you know, minimize some things. Like that's that to me has been way more valuable than stressing trying to make it happen. So yeah, tell me a, a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and kind of what you've learned from that. Like I said, I I was fixing computers at 12 and I I will say that I was an entrepreneur since I was 12. Reality, I've 
I think I've kind of always been. Me and my sisters, when we were living in that house, we were stringing up these popsicle sticks with yarn and walking around the neighborhood selling them at, you know, six, seven, eight years old. So it's, we were doing like trades. If I'm sure a lot of people will resonate with this, but like you go trick or treating and you get all this candy and, and you do a swap meet if you have siblings, you know? So, so it's always just kind of been something that I've been into. And he was a super, you know, serial entrepreneur and I've just done all sorts of things. Like I like to say that all go to sleep with a business idea, wake up in the middle of the night with a business plan and have the business ready to go by the time everybody else is awake. So it's happened. Like I, I won't get into that too much, but I think a lot of it is from watching him create all these different businesses and just seeing how it's done. I didn't go to like business school or anything. It's all mostly self-taught. School was not a friend to me. I was not a friend to it, but, but I think that's more on my own more on me than anything because I've learned you know that I really do enjoy learning it's just I enjoy learning what I want to learn you know so so as far as like you know my entrepreneurial journey there have been lots of ups and downs it's a roller coaster and tell I think me about that, some of those I kind of want to know what you like thought about at night and and tested during the day well that was more of just like 10x unicorn idea that I've been building that I kind of want to be known for is essentially a blend of 10xing your goals and your actions to achieve those goals mixed with my other company, the Unicorn Universe, mixing the unicorn DNA with that and just kind of making a blend and bringing people together that are like-minded, that are go-getters, that want to make a bigger impact on the world and will wake up with a business plan and hit the ground running, you know? So I kind of had this idea already. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it, but I knew I wanted to do something with the 10X unicorn thing. And it was probably midnight. Somebody had posted on LinkedIn and he was like, if you're looking to start a business, here are the steps, here are all the things that you need. Get card.co, get Stripe, get Calendly, build a community, X, Y, Z and then launch it. I was up all night basically doing exactly that. And yeah, and then, you know, I put a post out and I was like, hey, like if you want to sign up, go for it and sign up. If you're watching this, don't go for it and sign up. I'm very much focused on my company, Unicorn Universe. That's a place I will gladly welcome people into because what I've learned is that, especially as an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, it's so easy to chase shiny objects and it is so much better to stay focused and stick with the things that you're passionate about. I wouldn't say build things to perfection before launching them, but have your MVP down, you know, have have at least the minimum viable product ready so that when you do launch, you're providing enough value and service to the people that you're offering it to, you know. I'm currently all in, all the way focused on Unicorn Universe. And yeah, and that's that's because we're bringing people together that are passionate about collaborating and connecting and elevating each other's business to make positive impact in the world. And how can you make money doing that? Oh man, so we, <laughs> how can the people that come in, there are so many ways. So the model that we have is such that we have set up partnerships with all sorts of different companies that will pay us a percentage of the revenue from the referrals that we send. So we've set up about a hundred partnerships with all these different companies. And then we'll send referrals based on who we think can help another business out as much as possible in the best way possible. These strategies vary from financial strategies, tax credits to funding to 
you know, branding a company, building out tech systems, really like you, you name it, marketing services, hiring people. So it's, it's a pretty broad array of services that we can connect people to. And the reason that we started this was we really wanted to give people a system of abundance, specifically those that are like super connectors to monetize the connections that they make for people. Because so often somebody will, you know, bring two people together and say, Hey, you guys should chat because I think there's, you know, an opportunity for you guys to create something here. And then, you know, they'll get together and in some instances generate hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars that, you know, otherwise wouldn't have happened if the connector, the person that brought them together, didn't bring them together. But so often they don't get the credit where it's due. And a lot of people, and I have meetings with people that, you know, they say, oh, I'm a super connector. And I'm always curious to know like what they mean by that. Like, you just like connecting with people. Are you like really strategic with it? Do you make any money doing it? Most of the time, nobody's making money doing it, but it takes a lot of work sometimes. I mean, so I've made take... at least six or seven introductions today. And yeah, who knows if anything will come from it or if it will turn into any kind of business for me. But right. I kind of look at that too, like building a community because I do believe that it comes back and I've seen it come back. Right. And, and I totally agree with that. I, do it all the time, just, you know, making connections without any sort of expectation. But what we've done is created a community of partners that we trust and have vetted and will make recommendations to because they provide a quality service and it's done as you could expect it to. So when we find a business owner that's looking for, say, marketing and they want the best marketing possible, We'll connect them with one of our partners who's going to actually deliver what they expect. And whoever sent us that business is going to get paid because we're going to get paid. And our goal is to pay everybody. That's where the abundance part comes in. If you send us a referral, you're going to get paid, period. That's just how it works. And so, you know, so while I appreciate making connections because so much magic happens from it. And like, there's no sense in holding back from it because like, I'm personally on a mission to make a positive impact in the world. And when you bring together people that are also passionate about making positive impact in the world, whose mission, values, visions, who, where all those things align, like you're just doing a disservice to the world by not making that connection. So you make it, not always gonna make money out of it, but we've set up a system that if somebody needs a service and you send them to us and it generates revenue for us, we're going to pay whoever sent us that business for life. And so, so that's just kind of the, that's amazing. The I, mean, I think it. it's, yeah, I think it's a good idea. However, how do you create good partnerships? And like, I do feel like I've worked with people who cut out the middleman. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is based on the honor system, as far as, you know, not getting cut out as the middleman. But the thing that we've done is so one and then another part of it is trial and error, right? So unfortunately, you got to go through some experiences to determine, okay, yes, this is a good partner, like, let's turn up the heat and send them a lot of referrals. And then getting into the honor system. The thing about it is that we're not just the middleman saying, Oh, you need marketing, here you go. It's what else do you need? Our goal, our purpose is to focus on that person's dream, which is why we do a dream discovery. And we say, okay, what do you need to get there? And we'll continue working with them because we have so many opportunities that we're going to know if they're doing business with the company we sent them to, right? So the other part of it is if we send business to that company and they try to shut us out, well, that's a good way to lose the partnership, right? And if we're sending continuous business, you're not going to want to cut us out because of one deal, you know? And then that gets into the whole, 
back to our whole unicorn DNA, which focuses on abundance and reciprocity. If you're not being reciprocal, you're not a fit for the unicorn universe. That's just, it kind of all ties together. For the most part, the people that we set up partnerships with, they want to pay people for those referrals. They want to do it. They want to give back to where it's due. That's good. How have some of those partnerships come into your your universe? Is it just through LinkedIn mainly or? No, for the most part, it's come from various networking events, be it mm-hmm. virtual or in person or referrals from other people that are like, hey, you should go talk to Unicorn Universe. So, but yeah, we've done some LinkedIn, done plenty of things on LinkedIn. I used to be Pitch Slapper McGee on LinkedIn with LinkedIn automation, but I've disabled that. So if you ever got a pitch slap message from me, I am sorry. It, it does not happen anymore. I'd love to have a real conversation with you now. And I'm and I don't approve of it anymore. When I get those messages in my DM, it's like, oh man, we could have had something great. But I know that they're just gonna keep pitch slapping me with this automated thing. And it's Yeah, just tell not me what that fun. pitch slap looked like. Oh man, are you kidding me? With a hundred partnerships, it was all things. It was all of it, right? Like, and we have the unicorn DNA. So it'd be like, you know, hey, are you a unicorn? Go fill out this survey and see what percentage of the unicorn DNA you match with. Or it'd be like, hey, are you a business owner that had employees during COVID? Go check out this form to see if you qualify for the employee retention credit. Or it's like, hey, have you ever, you know, worked with a company and not gone the service that you deserve? That's what we're here to solve is making sure that you get the quality of service that you expected, like schedule a dream discovery or schedule a discovery with us. I had, I mean, I think 17 automated messages that I would, you know, shove down people's throats. And it was always funny because, I, you know, every now and then I'd get a response from somebody and be like, oh, yes, it worked. And it's stop. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I turned that off, I think, in April when I decided that it just it wasn't a good thing to be doing. Nobody likes that. I realized I hate getting those messages. Why am I doing it to other people? We've shut them off completely. We spent plenty of money automating LinkedIn messages. So if you're doing that, I would challenge you to get authentic and be yourself on LinkedIn and post and you'll see much better results if that's what you're looking for. But you'll have a better impact anyway. So. Yeah. Don't you think it's more quality versus quantity? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I get so many inbound messages and people that just schedule on my calendar because rather than me trying to craft the perfect message to get them to click the link and schedule reluctantly because they know they're probably just going to keep getting sold to. I put content out there that is in line with my personal mission to positively inspire, encourage, or challenge as many people as I can to be the best version of themselves they can be. That's what most of my content is put out there for. And I get people messaging me all the time. You know, some people will click on my profile and see a link and they'll schedule a call with me. And then, you know, and I didn't have to pitch slap them to make that happen. The best ones are the ones, because now I get it all the time. And it's like, Daniel, I've looked at your profile. I know that this, my services that I already, you know, slapped you with are everything that you need. So let's get on a call. I'm like, if you really looked at my profile, you and I would be on a call right now because my link is right there. Like, hello. So, so I just ignore them. I just literally ignore it. And I think I don't block people because I understand where they're coming from. I have been in that spot as we just talked about. And I think that, you know, my goal is as many people as possible. I used to put a number on it. It used to be 8 billion people, but I got rid of the number because I think there's a bigger 
objective there. I think it, you know, the impact that we can have can last a very long time. So, so I don't want to shut anybody out, you know, even the pitch slappers, even the scammers, because I think that they might be able to make adjustments, you know. Do you have if a special they... place in your heart for scammers? No. <laughs> uh, just stop. You're only hurting yourself. If you get to the place where you feel like you need to be scamming people, there's got to be so much behind that that got you to that spot. But you're never going to live a lifestyle of joy if you're scamming people because you're always going to be watching your back. You're always going to be worried that somebody's out to get you or you know because you're out to get other people like you know a special place in my heart maybe but it's it's dark over there <laughs> like so. okay so i do want to kind of tie that back to your daddy's story like what was it yeah. like meeting him in spain so i met him in mexico first so it wasn't too weird i mean it was kind of weird because i i landed in madrid and he took the bullet train up there to pick us up and it was me and a couple of my siblings it was definitely weird. I think meeting him in Mexico helped. Did you ever I, visit him in jail? No, we almost did at one point, but it just didn't happen. And I think I'm glad that we didn't, but that's it a didn't long happen. period, like four years, and you were really growing up during that time. Yeah, it was a long period. He would write letters. What's interesting is I thought that I saved them all and I kept them in my special paper box which was wooden for the longest time. And then one, one year I realized, I'm like, that's kind of dumb. I should put these in one of those like fireproof safe boxes, you know? Because I put all these special papers, all the notes from like middle school and the letters from my dad and all that. One year I was going through it all and the letters were at the very, very, very bottom of the box. I went through all the letters from school knowing I was going to get to the letters from my dad. Like I went through literally every little piece of memorabilia I had in that box. And I get to the letters from my dad and I read through the first page and flip it over and read through the second page. There are definitely other pages to that, but I must have lost them. And, and it was heartbreaking to me because I hadn't looked at those since he sent them to me. And this was only like a few years, like a couple of years ago. And okay, so just for chronological sakes, you know, he sent those, it would have been like 2001, 2000, 2002, roughly. So it was, it had almost been 20 years and I had kept on to these papers thinking I had a full, you know, all these letters from my dad, but like reluctant to look at them because anytime I would, I would start crying, you know, because it was hard. I mean, my dad, I looked up to him pretty a lot. Like I really looked up to him. I used to call, I used to, I wouldn't call him. He could only call me, but we'd have hours, hour long, multiple hour long conversations about, you know, what I was doing. And when I was fixing and flipping electronics, I was getting all sorts of advice from him because I didn't have anywhere else to turn to. And it was more like better answer daddy versus better call daddy because otherwise I couldn't call him. If I missed his phone call, I wouldn't know when he was going to call back, even though he got an iPhone and I could iMessage him finally for the first time in my life. And it was like 2012, 2011 or 12 when he got an iPhone. I was like, cool, I can text my dad now. I could FaceTime my dad now, but he never adopted it. I'm like, dude. How do you not take initiative to just respond back to my text message, you know? Well, he was like super busy running bakeries and running other things, who knows what. So yeah, how did I get here? So that was interesting. So I always thought that I'd be able to, you know, text him back, but it just never happened. So anytime I would get a phone call from an unknown name, unknown number, that was my dad. Like most people ignore those calls because they're scammers, but that was my dad, a different kind of scammer. <laughs> But I would answer it, right? Because if I didn't, then I might not. 
who knows when I would talk to him again. He was getting to the age where all of his dad, his granddad passed away from a heart attack. So like I wanted to have those conversations with him. So yeah, so when I found those letters, which was most of the communication I had from him while he was in jail, I I was heartbroken because I thought I had like this little book. I thought I'd be able to put it in the book that I'm not writing yet. I was going to say that would make a book, especially if you could like have some of the original letters. Oh my gosh. And I still have, you know, half of one of them. It's weird. I part of me was like going into that letter, like maybe this will give me some closure. Nope, <laughs> that didn't help. So I really didn't. I didn't ever see him in jail. I only talked to him on the phone a couple of times while he was in jail because it was expensive to call. All the money he made, he wanted to send back to us. It was mostly letters. Four years. I mean, it did. It definitely seemed like a long time, but at the same time, given what he was involved with, it also seems like nothing. You know. So what happened when you met him in Mexico? Oh man. Well, so we were supposed to meet him in Canada. He landed there. We were kind of gearing up to meet him there. And he called us and he was in Spain. We're like, what? We thought you were going to be in Canada. He's like, oh, Canada. They didn't let me stay there very long. They didn't even let me through the gates. I landed there and they kicked me out. So I, so he hurried and swapped all of our tickets. He made it down to Mexico, started looking at properties to like rent. He did like a condo on the beach. It's a super nice condo. I don't know how he afforded it. I don't know how he afforded anything. But yeah, so we met him. It was the weirdest thing because we flew into San Diego. We got in this like shuttle basically and then drove across the border. And there he was, short dude. He was like five, four or five, six or something. He wasn't, he wasn't super tall. He was always pretty chunky because he was always working bakeries, you know? It was really weird. But like we went to the grocery store. I can't remember what it was called. You're watching this and you live in Mexico. It's the popular one. So we went to the grocery store. He was shocked at how much we had to spend on groceries. I think it was in that moment that he realized just how hard my mom had it. And spending, go to the grocery store, spend six, $700 on food, you know, for a couple of weeks on a budget, right? Like that was, that was keeping it minimal. So we go to the grocery store and we had like two shopping carts. We were going to be there for, I think it was seven or 10 days or something. But he had this nice place. We were going to stay at this one place. We stayed in Rosarito. We were going to stay at this place that like had this carousel or Ferris wheel and like all these water slides and it looked super cool. And he, we drove by it on the way. He's like, that's where we are not staying. And it was this, it was a dump. Like it was not good. But where we ended up staying was super nice. Had like an infinity pool, like this condo. He did good with that. That's sweet that you got that beautiful memory together. Yeah. I mean, mostly good memories. Honestly, I could tell you some bad ones if you want, but. Sure, have at it. (laughs) (laughs) The most ingrained, like not so great memory I have my dad, because him and I were pretty close. We were good friends, you know, even at six, seven, eight years old. Like one day me and my brother were sitting at the counter on the, you know, bar stools or whatever. And I spilled my brother's milk. Not a good idea. My dad was kind of a, he had a bit of a temper. And so I spilled the milk and my dad asked, he's like, who spilled it? And I blamed my brother. You know, what am I going to do? I was kind of afraid. He knew I was lying though. He knew it. So he's like, oh, really? So he grabs me. I don't know, you know, the whole track, but he takes me over to the fridge. Keep in mind, we had seven kids. So there was no short supply of milk. And he proceeds to dump gallons of milk on me, basically like waterboarding me with milk. Gallons, you know, between chocolate milk and regular milk and just drenched me, probably spanking me at the same time. And then told me to go take a shower. And I was like, okay. So that was probably like one of my more traumatic experiences with my dad. I got it 
good being the favorite aside from my other sister who was his princess and he would call her his principesca he'd call me his hijo mi hijo yeah that was pretty awful but i would take that over watching my siblings get banked all day long because at least it didn't really hurt physically just emotionally I wonder if my brother remembers that. We really haven't talked much about it. I don't think he does remember it. I mean, he would have been like five at the oldest, you know. Do you think um, he ever had to like do that in business? Do you feel like you have that in you? No, I, I'm, I'm going to say no. I watched him be abusive and I refuse to ever let that be a thing, you know, just not, not cool. You do a lot of damage when you do that. So I definitely don't support it. I think I like, you know, the direction that the world has gone, that it's, you know, zero tolerance to spankings or anything like that. And yeah, so I think he might have picked up on some of that dealing with the cartel. Who knows? He probably got tortured at some points in his interactions. He probably did some of it himself. I mean, he was fairly abusive. So I have a zero tolerance stance for that kind of stuff. Are you getting any residuals from the show Ozark? Yeah. Did we talk about that? Because, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So apparently what I learned after the FBI released his case files, they then did this podcast. And apparently the show Ozark is kind of based on this whole story that he wasn't the guy. I can't remember the guy's name, but that wasn't him necessarily, as far as I'm kind of told. The whole story is not my story, right? But it's oddly similar and yeah i definitely can relate to that show honestly though like part of me feels like the guy i think he had it worse in the show than my dad did but i think the family part of me thinks that we kind of had it worse in some ways we didn't have to you know deal with watching people get killed or anything like that but i mean we moved like so many times after all of that happened the show doesn't portray him getting deported him dying like all those other things that we got to deal with like they still kind of lived an okay life you know we lost everything my house my grandparents house all of our stuff like all of our friends because they were all in these nice super nice areas and we couldn't afford to go to a birthday party basically because we didn't have anything you know what does that teach and, you about friends well i mean at that age i don't think they really had much control over it you know what it did teach me though is that the real friends because i have one who has been there for you know with me since then since all of that through the thick and thin through all sorts of different things like that him and i went through and he's still my best friend he's also my birthday twin chris he's awesome <laughs> all right we'll have to tag so, chris in this <laughs> yeah people change when you are associated with people that do bad things you know or have done bad things how does that an event just this last year in January for my company and we had a booth and I was having a great time. I didn't get any sleep the night before, but I was having a great time. It was like such an awesome event. This guy came up to the booth. I'm like, I recognize this guy. Are you, I'm not going to say his name. Are you so-and-so? And he's like, yeah. He's like, are you Daniel? Are you a Martinez? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh man. He's like, how's it going? You know, like seeming kind of interested and he was like, yeah, it was too bad to hear like everything that happened with your dad and then him passing. He's like, but you know, I got to say like, he screwed me out of a hundred thousand dollars. And I'm like, okay. He's like, yeah, he scammed me and like said he was going to put it into this business investment and that didn't ever happen. I'm like, okay. And he's like, yeah, so sorry, like sucks. Like 
make better business decisions. I don't know what to tell you. Like he was kind of looking at me like almost, it felt like almost like he, like I owed him something. I'm like, look, man, between then and now, my dad went to jail. He got deported. He died from a heart attack. My mom got cancer. We lost all of our houses, my grandparents' house, our cars. Like, I don't know you shit, man. Like, come on, go away, please. Thanks for ruining this for me. You know, like, and I was just like, all right, I'm going to go take a nap in the car. Like I, and that's what I did. Been through enough to not let something like that get to me enough. But, but yeah, people definitely change and look at you different. And this isn't the only reason why I go by my grandparents on my mom's side last name, Knight, but it's one of many reasons. I don't need to be associated with my dad's decisions, you know, like, I'm my own person. It's interesting because like when I announced it, I went and I changed it everywhere. I like announced it and put it out there. And all of a sudden I'm like, okay, my last name is Knight now. Like I got to live like a higher standard. It was kind of weird, which probably not right. You know, going back to the whole racial thing, but I just, I felt like I had a different standard to live up to, which is super weird. But did it feel spiritual at all? I felt guilty more than anything because like I told my dad I wanted to change my last name to Knight and was he was not happy that. about it. Yeah. yeah. How did that conversation go? Not so good. He was very sad about it. Aww. I'm like, well, what do you expect, man? Like, do you have any idea the crap I've had to deal with in my life? I still live in the same city that I lived in when all of this happened, you know? And people that know him know what happened, you know, like, and apparently a handful of them got screwed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I'm like, I don't want to put up with that. Like, why do I have to carry the burden of, you know, the things that you did? But I didn't change it. I was like, I'll wait till you die. But and that was, you know, quite a while before I actually decided to change it. So is there anything that you'd like to ask my dad? Oh, man, he's a chess player. He's a chess player. I That's see the knight on your shirt. Yeah. And that actually had nothing to do. I didn't come up with this or anything. It's just kind of funny. We actually like to, we like to help people play chess, not checkers with their finance. Um, that's kind of why the chess piece. But how do you do that? I would like to ask your dad. Just different kind of mindset, having, you know, the right kind of resources and strategies in place to play a bigger game than hopping over each other. Mm. Like chess board or checkers board. I like that metaphor. It's good. Now I'm trying to think of a question I'd like to ask your dad. Maybe something that you didn't get to ask yours. Well, there's nothing. I've, I I kind of decided that I don't want to learn much of anything from my dad, which is kind of hard because I learned so much from him. Because like now I'm like, I want to know what his favorite dad joke is. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody's maybe, asked him that. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll go with that because I like to have a good time. To anybody who does have issues talking about their past, as far as it relates to their dad, like I get it. I also find it so much better to just be okay talking about it. The more you talk about it, the easier it gets. So it's an interesting story. And I think that people can learn a lot from it. Oh yeah. And Have people come to you with their stories now? Not really. I have not really told it in this way very much. I wrote the article. Some people saw it. I have never told it like, you know, in a setting like this, that's for sure. So here come the floodgates. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an open book. Like, really, I really don't. I'm I'm all for it. It's not my story, necessarily. I mean, what he did affected me and things like that. But I'm just getting started in round two. I like to say because every male above me, his dad, they all died mid 50s from a heart attack. So I always 
say age zero to 27 and a half is round one, 27 and a half to 55 is round two. Everything after that is a bonus round. I'm just in round two. And I fully expect my bonus round to be just as long as round one and two combined, because I'm not going to live that same fate. If I die mid fifties from a heart attack, I'm going to be pissed. Like, <laughs> just saying. Like, okay, that better please not happen. keep in touch with me till round three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bonus round <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, I can't yeah. wait to hear what my dad has to say about this. I might have to even call him after this. And this is I, a very special recording done on the weekend, which I never do. But sometimes oh. you meet people and you're like, we got to do this. Cool. Well, I, yeah, I was for it. So I appreciate it. Mr. Daniel Knight, thank you so much for coming on Better Call Daddy Show. Thank you, Rena. I appreciate it. Let people know how they can connect with you and join the Unicorn Universe. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, our website is unicornuniverse.io. And from there, I would say schedule a dream discovery. That's where we'll dig in to see what you're trying to accomplish and how we can help you get there. Otherwise, I'm on LinkedIn. That's where I'm most active. And it's just, you know, Daniel Knight. I've got the unicorn emoji. Username is 10x unicorn. So that's where it is on all the platforms. But LinkedIn is where you'll find me personally the best. And if you're looking for somebody to talk about past, get comfortable talking about dad situation, I'm here for it. Like I'm here to support people in any way, shape or form. That's amazing. I totally need to have like the dream conversation too. And are you on Instagram or? I have an Instagram, but I am, I really try to kind of avoid being on like Instagram and Facebook, but you can find me there. Yeah. And it's all the same 10 X unicorn. Instagram has an underscore it's 10 X underscore unicorn. So I think it would still pop up Daniel Knight. That's the name. That's <laughs> so. the name. All right. I like it. Tribute yep. to the Knights. Now let's switch it over to grandpa. You know, Daniel Knight, beautiful name. And I like how you went over some of the symbols where, you know, he puts a chess piece of a knight on his shirt. He's got his name as a knight. It's just the opposite of nighttime. He really is a shining light. No matter what your circumstances are in life, that you can always put a new name, a new place, a new face on it, just like as if you're on TV and are opening up a new show. Life, you only have a limited amount of time. And sometimes even people in the public eye have the same realization that you have to be a cut above. To be not only you want to do the best that you can, not only do you want to try to better yourself, but if you are come from a tough situation or that you are, as I said, in the public eye, you have to hold yourself to a higher standard. And everyone in life should be saying, hey, it doesn't really matter what kind of road that we had to travel from. We can overcome any place, anything that we've gone through and put into effect a life that can be brighter, a life that we can do better and be a better example for the people around us and for loved ones and for society in general, that nothing should hold us back from achieving. Nothing should hold us back from making ourselves better and everyone around us better. And sometimes it takes rising above these adversities to realize that life has thrown all of us a curveball and we have to learn to be able to pivot and adjust to life's ups and downs so that we can make always better choices for the future. Life is quite a chess game. And isn't it ironic that he picks the chess game 
because he didn't want to just say that life is like uh, jumping checkers, but that it's intricate moves. It's really understanding how to control the whole board is what chess is about. As you know, I've played some chess to a fairly high level. And at times when I was getting inspired by grandmaster play, you actually can rise to that level also. Whether you can sustain it at that level is another thing. It takes a lot of effort and time. And where you do that, you have to do that most of your life, you know, as a profession. I was very diverse and said, hey, you know, even though I love the game, I have other adventures that I can be better at and where it can be monetized a lot better than the chess, where I can't really do that as a profession. And a lot of chess players that are at that level, uh, that could probably, like I said, if you had a tour like uh, you have in golf or in tennis, some of these players would be making a hell of a lot more money. But to have to hustle and write books and give lessons and teach, and I, I just felt that I could have a better opportunity to make more money using that knowledge, uh, understanding, and other things. And I think it has paid off quite a bit in the business world that I'm in. But that's the thing. We have to understand that even things that we love to do, is it a hobby? Is it something that makes you feel better? Do you have to get paid for everything that you do? Or are there even value in things that we do that don't have to be monetized? But yet at the same time, you have to be able to survive. And if you want certain things, you have to have a way of your life that can be monetized. That's just part of the facts of the of the game of life. I, I also know that when tough or bad things happen to you, isn't it ironic that people look at you a lot differently when you're down, okay? Not many people are there to give you an uplifting hand. Daniel is trying to do that. He wants to say, hey, I know what it is to come from very tough experience of having everything and then having nothing and losing everything. And yet I still want to be in contact with my dad, even though terrible things happened and he was involved in some terrible things. But I still want to be where he's where I come from. He's my father. You only get one father and still was excited on any phone call that he could get, even when they were going to be separated, okay, from countries or in jail or whatever. But he was still going to be an extension of his father, but in a better way and in a better light where he wasn't going to be trapped by whatever problems that his father experienced, that he was still going to make a better life, learn from those lessons, and be able to show that he can be an extension of his father doing better things and better choices for the future. That's really what it's all about. Sometimes people say that you can't overcome where you came from or the environment that you're in. But I'm on in the camp that, yes, you can. You can overcome these things. Do you feel like you've had to create a better way in any aspects of your life? Of course, you know it. And yet at the same time, I was also dedicated to seeing grandparents and great-grandparents' dreams that they had where they're part of my life, where I try to make that extension come true as well. My dad, who had, uh, as you know, a tough break with many uh, businesses, where my mom and, and I and some, some other family members were included, where, where we tried to make a go of it and make a successful business. And of course, some would say that it could have been better, it could have been worse. But I think overall, at least in my, my interpretation, is that I think we were really quite successful together, putting it all together, even through all the ups and downs. I think so, too. Part of his question really is, is that I don't necessarily have one specific joke. 
But we can work around that by saying that really, as you know, in our family, we have that, that famous saying, it's good to laugh. That we've got to sometimes, we can make fun of ourselves of some of the things that are happening and not take it so seriously where it can be depressing. We've got to be able to also live with ourselves and know that crazy things can happen all along the way. And we have to be able to chuckle or laugh about it and not let it really get us down. Crazy things happen all the time. So having good humor and being able to laugh is also an important ingredient to life and being able to forward, not only be forward thinking, but forward forward, you got to be able to do it where you're relaxed and you're happy and where it's not as bad or it's not as, don't, don't take yourself so seriously. It's good to laugh. And if you don't, you'll cry. That's for sure. But we get over it. Today is a, was a perfect day to listen to this because we're all knowing that they're going to raise the interest rates three quarters of a point. The market really wanted to even bounce back even after the announcement of the news. But with them still talking that things could still be tight and that things might not relax yet, all of a sudden, that's all it took. And the market goes from plus 300 to all of a sudden, you're down 500 by, you know, an hour later where you're down 800 points in a swing. And where you think that there's hope that your investments are going to be okay, and then boom, you're right back in the toilet. And the funny part is, is that if we really wanted to really think about it, this was an obvious conclusion that could could occur. That he doesn't want to say anything to think that he's doing his job to relax, where people can just get away with just continue to raise and raise prices without them being ramifications. And isn't that also? A good part of this story about life is that even though you're dealt a hand and a lot of a lot of money can be laundered or done wrong, where you're running the risk of maybe living on, on a high for a while. But if you're not careful, no matter what we do in life, money can disappear very quickly and a wrong turn or you do something wrong. All the good that you've done in your life can sometimes be erased with a, doing a terrible or a bad thing can wipe out all the good that you might have done for 20 or 30 years, can get wiped out in, in a matter of hours, days, or in a month or so. So we have to all be on our toes to be the that very best example and really be a little conservative where we don't risk, where we can lose everything. And yet, as you know, there's wars going on where people are running their businesses all through history. Certain governments or wars can occur or a tragedy can happen in one's family where we disappear or lose everything. So we have to enjoy and live life to its fullest and not take it so seriously, even though sometimes we all easily can't say that. But the fact is, is that we have to enjoy our family, improve our family, continue to show good examples of what we stand for. Because if we want the next generation and the next generation and the next generation to have a chance to do better, we have to hold ourselves to a higher standard if you want your legacy continue to be held to a higher standard. They have a chance to also do that for their children and their children's children. So we never stop giving a good example by living by that simple standard. Hopefully, all of society and the human race has a chance to continue to improve. And yet we still can face disaster at any moment if we don't. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 